This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Jeremy LeCoque. I'm an EMS and Disaster Medicine Fellow at UCSF. Uh, so I work clinically at San Francisco General Hospital, and then as part of my uh, year-long education program and in, in my fellowship, uh, I work with uh, the ambulances, the EMS system, and, and public health. So today I'm going to use some of my uh, experiences to talk about heat-related effects on the population and the effect it has on our uh, emergency services and, and hospital system. Okay, so I have no conflicts of interest. Um, a little bit about me. I spent almost my whole life in Chicago before coming here to San Francisco for my fellowship. I grew up uh, in Hyde Park, right here on the south side, um, and slowly made my way north as I grew up uh, and was in Bucktown here on the northwest side before coming here. Uh, I went to school at the University of Illinois in Urbana, which is just downstate of Chicago, and there is uh, where I started medicine, both in the classroom, but also as an emergency medical technician. So I worked on campus there at events as an EMT, and then during the summers, I would come home and work for a private ambulance company. So I, I got introduced to emergency medicine while I was a, a freshman in college, and that kind of helped steer my, my career direction. Then I did my medical school and residency in emergency medicine at Midwestern University. Uh, the school is just west of Chicago, and then the hospitals were kind of throughout the city where I did my, my training. And then, like I mentioned, since July and until uh, this July, I'm a fellow at, the, at UCSF. I do most of my time at San Francisco General Hospital. It's the sole county hospital and trauma center in the city. So it's been a great experience, both in the emergency room and from a public health and uh, EMS perspective. So my objectives for, for you watching the lecture are for you to understand the definition of a heat emergency to understand what makes a certain population vulnerable, what makes an individual vulnerable, what the effects of heat are on the EMS system and the hospital systems, and also what you can do to help. So I want to start by bringing you on a shift with me to the emergency room. So I, I want you to imagine it's October 2019, which is during one of the heat, heat waves we had. Um, like I said, this is one of the places I work clinically. Um, this is the hallway outside of our resuscitation rooms, so this is occasionally where I walk to, to see an incoming patient. Whenever someone sick comes in, they announce it overhead, and then we kind of wander through this hallway into the corresponding room to, to meet the patient coming by ambulance. So an example of a patient that I saw during one of our heat waves in here in San Francisco was a 40-year-old male that had a history of diabetes and kidney disease. He was riding one of the, tro uh, the trolleys, felt dizzy, passed out, and fell off the trolley. So uh, here are the paramedics taking care of him. You can see that they're concerned about the fall, so they're holding uh, the patient's head and immobilizing the patient's spine and uh, assessing the patient. So when the patient comes in the emergency room and I see them, it turns out that the patient said uh, that he wasn't drinking as much water, he didn't have much water around him, he was a, a tourist visiting the city, um, he was eating a lot of sweet food while visiting, um, and his blood sugar was uh, was a little high because of you know all the treats he was eating, and was also not drinking very much water uh, while he was exploring the city. So we think that that contributed to him being dehydrated and 
contributed to him passing out. And in addition to that, he hit his head when he fell. So we had to evaluate him for an intracranial injury, like bleeding, bleeding inside of his brain or concussion. Um, and, you know, during heat waves, those with diabetes and kidney disease are more sensitive to heat and being dehydrated because their kidneys have a harder time balancing fluids in the body and the extra sugar in the body. The, the kidneys try and get rid of that sugar, but when, when the body pees out that sugar, water comes with it. So that, that can lead to worse dehydration. So these are all things we considered uh, when we know the temperature outside is a little hotter than usual. So uh, there's several sources for, for public education on heat waves, uh, FEMA being one of them. So, you know, they have some resources, and this is a slide from them about extreme heat. Uh, they mention who's at greater risk, the fact that it can happen anywhere in the country regardless of the normal temperatures, and that humidity makes it, makes it even more pronounced when it's hot outside. The general definition I found for, for a heat wave or a heat emergency was two to three consecutive days of high heat and uh, along with humidity with temperatures above 90 degrees. That's where the, the studies say that there's an increase in all-cause mortality, you know, people having illness and dying uh, from heat is when it's above 90. So the World Health Organization, just to have a, a common definition, you know, they mentioned that between the year 2000 and 2016, the number of people exposed to heat waves increased by, uh, by about 125 million. In uh, 2015 alone, 175 million additional people were exposed to heat waves compared to average years. Single events can last weeks, they can happen one after the other, and it can result in significant excess mortality, more mortality than if there were not a heat wave. Exposure to excessive heat has a wide range of physiological impacts for, for everyone, often amplifying existing conditions and resulting in premature death and disability. The negative health impacts of heat are predictable and uh, often preventable with specific public health actions and individual actions. So the World Health Organization has issued public health guidance for the, for the public and medical professionals in coping with the heat. So this is a graph from the Environmental Protection Agency, um, and it talks about heat-related deaths between 1979 and 2014. Um, and you can see that each spike generally corresponds with a, a heat wave, so they differentiate between the underlying cause of death and the underlying and contributing causes of death. So the underlying cause of death, um, you know, that might be a direct cause of, of a heat wave. So the heat itself contributed to the mortality of the patient, whereas contributing cause of death, the heat may have contributed to the death, but it's not necessarily the primary cause. So that's, I think, the differentiation they're, they're trying to make there. Um, these are summer deaths related to heat and cardiovascular disease, so specifically heart disease, uh, which heat can exacerbate. So you can see the purple line is for those 65 and up. Uh, the fact that the mortality, the death rate is higher in that population helps highlight the fact that they're more susceptible to heat. Um, and of course, they're more likely to have other illnesses and other things going on given the age. Um, unfortunately, non-Hispanic blacks are more vulnerable to, to heat, as you can see, and then the general population is the lowest on there. But also these spikes correspond to uh, known heat waves. So these are heat-related deaths in a 1995 Chicago heat wave. I did pull some data specifically from San Francisco since that's where I am now and also from Chicago uh, since that's where I'm from. And uh, what I thought was interesting is that the there was a, a pretty big spike during a heat wave, uh, but the, the green line represents the heat and the red represents the daily deaths. So you can see that there's 
in this case, a lag between the heat and the death. So sometimes the heat can, can cause mortality you know, within the same day or almost right away, depending on exactly what's going on, or it can cause an exacerbation of the patient's existing health problems and lead to mortality in the next uh, two, three, four, five days. For instance, you know, someone could have COPD or emphysema breathing problems. The heat can contribute to making it worse, and then they go to the hospital, and then they end up passing away a few days later. Um, that's, that's one way that heat can, can affect people. This is another uh, set of data from the EPA that I thought was interesting. So it shows the, the change in unusually hot temperatures in, in the United States. So the, the big orange triangles show an increase in heat, whereas blue shows a, a decrease in temperature. So you can see the, the east coast, the west coast, a little bit of the south is affected uh, more so than other places. But, you know, we've all heard of heat waves uh, in the Midwest as well, and I'll discuss some that happened in Chicago, even though the average um, hasn't been increased, uh, you know, according to this graph. So just to talk a little bit about who is most affected by by heat, um, you know, starting on the left, those who are less able, disabled, they're less able to change environments, you know, if, if they're bedridden or if they um, use a wheelchair, they may not be able to as easily get up and go to an air-conditioned cafe or go to a library that has air conditioning or relocate. Um, they may have a harder time getting water on their own. Um, they may have a hard time communicating thirst if, if they're not able to communicate like other people. Uh, they may have a more difficult time going to the bathroom. So, you know, imagine if, if you have a hard time going to the bathroom, maybe less motivated to drink water because you don't want to get up and go to the bathroom more often than you have to. So um, those are some reasons why, why those who are less able may be more susceptible to heat. Uh, those who are pregnant, you know, the body's already stressed from supporting a, a growing baby, so heat and dehydration can have a, a larger effect on that population. Those who are already sick uh, already have a physiologic stress on their body, so heat can stress the body even more. Um, and you know, the more you stress the body, the more it has difficulty healing itself, uh, and the more likely it is to um, have worse symptoms um, and recover. The poor, the displaced, the homeless, uh, unsheltered, they have a, similar to some of these other populations, they have a more difficult time finding cool shelter, uh, having access to shelter, finding access to food and water. Um, they have limited access to health care in some instances. So um, all of these things that some of us take for granted uh, are more difficult for these populations and can contribute to them being dehydrated and becoming more, more ill. Um, children the elderly in general the extremes of age like that are more susceptible to to all kinds of diseases including heat um they're they can be less sensitive to the to thirst and messages the body's trying to send them about feeling dehydrated especially the elderly uh, they have a harder time feeling their sense of thirst and responding to it as as we might when we're younger um and especially those are bedridden like i mentioned they they rely often on loved ones or staff members to bring them water, and unfortunately, it doesn't always happen uh, to the extent that's that's needed. So, um, those who are in nursing homes or bedridden can get dehydrated a little bit more easily because of that. Um, 
it's pretty common in the emergency room that we'll get someone, especially during a heat wave from, from a nursing home, and we'll find that they have hypernatremia, high sodium. And that just uh, is often a reflection of the fact that they're dehydrated because the relative amount of water in their bloodstream is, is lower, so their sodium appears to be higher. So sometimes we have to admit people to the hospital uh, for their dehydration, give them a lot of fluids to get them back to normal. Um, finally, another vulnerable population are the outdoor manual workers. They may be previously healthy 25-year-old workers, uh, but when they're in, outside in the heat all day working, um, they may not have a cool place to take a break. They may have limited access to water. Uh, they may also minimize their symptoms. If they're, if they're there at work, they may feel peer pressure to keep working. They may rely on the job for income. So, uh, you know, some workers just keep working even though they're uncomfortable. And they may also have protective equipment, helmets and jackets and gloves, things like that, that may um, make it more difficult for their body to, to get rid of heat and thermoregulate. So this is a, an interesting uh, graph I found from the World Health Organization that I think is a good talking point for the different populations. Uh, so I want to break it down between indirect impacts of heat and direct impacts of heat. So to start with indirect, um, it affects our health services. It affects us because there are increased calls for, for ambulances. And eventually, if, if you know we only have a certain number of ambulances available in the city, if there are more ambulance calls, those number of ambulances may decrease, which means that there will be a slower response time. Uh, so if a bunch of people call 911 because they're feeling hot or weak, um, or they get injured while playing outside, and then all of a sudden someone has a cardiac arrest, there may be a slowed response time to get to that person because all the other ambulances are busy with those previous calls. So that's something we're continuously mindful of um, when planning and strategizing in the, uh, the pre-hospital system you know, working with ambulances and health systems is to try and make sure there's enough resources for, for everyone. So during a heat wave, it's definitely a, a bigger stress. So one way that we, we help plan for that is usually during a, a heat wave, we'll assemble in the emergency operations center, which is just a, a general meeting place, um, often at our 911 center. Uh, and we meet with, we have the sheriff and department of public works and representatives from hospitals and the EMS system. And we all work together to help plan what the best way is to, to mitigate illness and to plan the responses and make sure, you know, we, we're helping hospitals as best we can. And we just have like a bird's eye view of everything that's going on to help help plan for those things. Um, there could be a, a shortage of medications. More people might get admitted to the hospital, which means that more people will spend more time in the emergency room and be stuck in the emergency room before they can physically go upstairs, which can affect their care. There's increased risk of accidents like drowning. If, if people are outside because it's hot and they're trying to, to cool down or just enjoy the weather, um, more people will be swimming, uh, which therefore increases the risk of, of drowning. Uh, there's more work-related accidents, injuries, and poisonings. And being in water can increase the rate of disease outbreaks, but additionally being inside and people all being together in close quarters can uh, increase the rate of transmission from one person to another. We find this to be the same in the winter, like during flu season when everyone's together in the house and no one goes outside. Uh, there's an increased rate of, of transmission, so it's similar with, uh, with hot weather. And then this can affect our infrastructure. So if everyone, if more people are at home than usual as opposed to outside, there's going to be more electricity used, more water used. 
Uh, if people are using air conditioning, that's going to use more power, so that can put a, a stress on on the city's uh, power resources. Um, and same goes for water, transportation. Uh, there may be reduced productivity because fewer people can work. In terms of direct impacts that heat may have, it can cause heat-related illness like dehydration, heat cramps, heat stroke. Um, it increases all-cause mortality, so especially from respiratory problems, heart problems, and other chronic disease like mental health increases, uh, kidney disease. Um, you know, in Chicago, unfortunately, there was, uh, you know, we all know the shootings and violence there uh, is pretty prevalent, unfortunately, and usually on a, on a warm summer day, there would be more shootings than on a colder day because there's more people out and about. So that was a, a big consideration, especially in a, in a big urban city like that, where violence is unfortunately more common. Um, and hospitalization is, is more frequent from respiratory, you know, the same set of disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, kidney disease, strokes, mental health. Um, so this is just another illustration of direct versus indirect effects on health. Again, if, if it's hot outside, especially if you may not have air conditioning, um, you know, more people will be outside playing. So if you're outside playing and jumping in pools, you're more likely to get hurt, which can cause downstream effects. If you get hurt, then, you know, maybe you call an ambulance and more people call ambulances and more people go to the hospital and that puts an overall stress on the system. Um, and on the right side, you know, my intention isn't to have, have you read everything on there, but the idea is just to highlight the general categories of, of direct heat-related illness, like heat stroke when people are confused and have what we call an altered mental status. Uh, it could be, it's definitely, you know, life-threatening. The, the skin is sometimes damp, but could even be dry from dehydration. The temperature is 103 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. So that's, that's the extreme. Um, you know, that's a medical emergency that, that you want to call 911 for. Um, below that, there's heat exhaustion. That's a lot of people get fatigued. There's lots of sweating. Um, heat cramps is more on the milder side. It's just more muscle pains. And then, you know, there's sunburn and, and heat rash. So those are all illustrations of direct heat-related illness, uh, which which we also see an increase of. But I think the underappreciated portion of, of heat waves, I, I think most people think of these things of like heat strokes, but it's important to realize that it really affects all types of health conditions and affects the whole healthcare system, not just from people having heat strokes. So um, this also affects the healthy population. This also affects uh, teenagers, 20 year olds, 30 year olds, 40 year olds who, who are outside trying to enjoy themselves, especially in the case of, of a marathon. So. Um, when I was in Chicago for, for several years, I'd, I'd volunteer at the marathon, and it, it's, it's something I learned to appreciate, that even if it's 65 degrees outside and it's a beautiful day and everyone's happy and healthy, um, once you get into the race, halfway through the race, especially toward the end of the race, you know, I worked in, in a mobile hospital tent they had there, and it was a decent amount of patient flow in there just because when you take someone healthy even if it's 65 degrees outside but if you run for hours especially if you haven't trained yourself adequately to do so and you're not replenishing your fluids um, then it can create a medical problem that may not have been there originally so this is an extreme example in 2007 it was very very hot outside um, and the race ended up being canceled um, after it had started but a, a very large number of people 
um, needed medical attention. One person unfortunately passed away. It overloaded the uh, EMS system in the city, so they had to call in ambulances from different towns to help. Um, there is one hospital in the middle of downtown in Chicago that um, you know received a lot of patients, but then the other hospitals also became overwhelmed as that one became overwhelmed, so it had a big downstream uh, effect. So in terms of what is a heat emergency, we talked about some uh, you know, generic text definitions, but it's also important to appreciate the relative difference of what a population is used to versus what they might experience. So in Chicago, this is the average weather in Chicago throughout a, a general year. So as you can see in, in January, February, it's generally pretty, pretty cold. Um, you know, the low temperatures around 20. Last winter I was there, it got to like 20 or 30 below zero, so there's definitely exceptions. But in general, it's in the 20s. And then in uh, June, July, it can get up to the, to the 80s. So as a Chicagoan, myself and most of the people that live there got pretty used to these extreme temperatures. Um, the majority of people that had the resources to do so had, uh, you know, air conditioning and heating and they were accustomed to this type of weather. So there definitely was heat-related illness and indirect effects, but um, it didn't phase most of us if it was zero degrees or 80 degrees. Most of us were um, physiologically a, a little bit more prepared for it because, you know, we lived it through the years, but also um, logistically we were more prepared for it because it's something that was kind of normal. Um, so this is in contrast to San Francisco where the temperature is much more moderate and uh, consistent. You know, it doesn't really get colder than 45 degrees. It rarely gets higher than 70 degrees. Uh, there aren't really seasons as much here. It's more just kind of, you know, mid-range every day and occasionally there's a hot day and occasionally there's a, a cold day. Um, but you can see it in September, it kind of uh, spikes up to 70 degrees as a, as a high and then it gets kind of lower in July. I remember I, on my first few days here on the 4th of July, I expected it to be hot like it was for the first, uh, you know, few decades of my life. But we went outside to, to grill and we were all wearing jackets and it was freezing on the 4th of July. And that was just really shocking to me because it was supposed to be summer. It's supposed to be a fun barbecue on 4th of July, but it was cold and a much different experience coming to San Francisco. Um, so take into account that what the existing population is used to can affect how it affects their uh, physiology and their existing health. So with that said, things like this were surprising to me. You know, 76 degrees outside, there were public health notices about staying safe and drinking lots of water. Um, and this was surprising to me, of course, because 76 is a beautiful day in Chicago and I wouldn't think twice about it. But again, here, 76 is is much higher than what the, the population is used to. Um, and the, the infrastructure is different. People don't really have air conditioning in San Francisco. So it was uh, an early reminder to me that, you know, different places experience these temperatures in different ways. So these are just, uh, you know, here's another example of social media mentioning that it might go up to 80 degrees and uh, emergency alerts being sent out because of it. So people kind of make light of it, but it's also a very uh, significant thing for certain populations. So this is uh, June 2019. Um, you can see that the the general high um, normally is like 51 to 66 degrees. The low um, is roughly the, the same. Um, but in June, we experienced some record temperatures, 91 degrees, 97 degrees. 
So in a place that's not used to that type of temperature, that doesn't have air conditioning, that doesn't have a population that's used to that type of temperature and temperature change, it can have huge effects. So it, it did have a big effect on our city. Um, so again, as, as part of my fellowship, in addition to working as an emergency room physician, I also, like I said, pay a lot of attention to, to how these things affect ambulances and the, the pre-hospital um, emergency response system. So this is some data about how, how heat affects ambulance calls. So there's a lot of numbers on here, but basically what I want you to appreciate that in 2018, in the same time period when there was not uh, a heat emergency, there was a little less than a thousand calls uh, for EMS. But then this year there were 1,315 calls. So there was an increase in calls. Generally we expect maybe like a, f a few percent, maybe up to 5% increase in EMS calls naturally every year. Um, but this is obviously a little bit more than that, um, that we are attributing to the, the fact that there was a heat wave. So this is a, a graph of all the 911 calls in the city. So in 2018, when the temperature was a little bit more predictable um, and there was not a heat wave, you can see the hourly events, you know, goes up toward the evening and then goes down at about five in the morning you know usually in the evening is when ems and um and emergency room see the the busiest times um so you can see it's pretty consistent this is you know the the low and the high it's it's pretty predictable but here in 2019 when we experienced some heat you can see that this line of events spiked um especially around the the evening again here and again here the next day so this is this is much more than we expected so this has a lot of implications because um, you know it means the ambulances are busier which means that the hospitals are busier but although we can plan to some extent when we expect weather to happen sometimes these heat waves happen without much anticipation so um, you know this affects how our our various EMS providers plan for staffing if, if the heat wave comes kind of unexpectedly and all of a sudden there's an increase in calls it's not really logistically easy to suddenly call in uh, enough staff to add more 10 ambulances to the system, especially in the, in the middle of the night. So um, that often means that people have to wait longer for an ambulance because the ambulances are busier. Uh, and if the hospitals are busier, that means it's more difficult to take the patient that the paramedics have and offload them in the hospital because they have to wait for an available bed before they can uh, offload the patient and go on to another call. Um, so so it really affects the whole system. So that the more that we can predict these things and be prepared, uh, the better overall. But the, the frustrating thing, like I allude to, is that it's not always predictable when this can happen. This is a heat map um, of the city and how many ambulance calls there were. So this is 2018. Uh, the hot spot right there is uh, the Tenderloin, which is kind of a, an underserved um, neighborhood in the city that where a lot of people are un unsheltered and underprivileged, so there's that's that's the highest spot um, of EMS calls, um, and then it just kind of dissipates as as you get to the less populated areas of the city, and to the uh, higher socioeconomic class that tends to have air conditioning and better health care and things like that. Um, so this is compared to 2019, which you can see the call volume was higher and affected more of the population. So this table summarizes the impact on healthcare facilities. So 
Um, this is a, a list of our, our hospitals and diversion hours. So when a, a hospital gets overwhelmed um, and they have fewer and fewer resources to take care of new incoming patients, they can go on divert, which means that it's basically a request to the EMS system to say, hey, we're really busy. Uh, as long as the patient um, isn't extremely sick, it's a request to take them to a different hospital so that they don't get uh, an unsafe number of patients. Um, so this is a big, a big issue in San Francisco because we're kind of a geographically smaller area and we're, you know, surrounded by water. So if one hospital goes on divert, it can very easily lead to the second closest hospital going on divert, which causes the third one to go on divert. Um, and then ambulances have to constantly scramble to find a hospital that's open. And it's just like a, a downstream cascading effect that happens um, every time our system gets busy. So. Um, you can see our, our main hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, was uh, on divert the most. And then, um, you know, Van Ness, which is another one of our, our hospitals, was on divert quite a bit. And then, you know, so it has downstream effects. And then most of the uh, the comments, sometimes it has to do with inadequate staffing. Sometimes it's overcrowding. Um, Saturation is another way of saying overcrowding. So this is another example of how how it can affect our EMS system. This is another graph of just general healthcare facilities in our system, not just hospitals, but also urgent cares, family health centers. Uh, we have a sobering center where we can take people that meet certain criteria and may have um, maybe intoxicated from alcohol. So this compares the outside temperature with the inside temperature. So you can see one of these urgent cares, even though it was uh, about 90 degrees outside, or you know, in this case, a little less than 90, it was 101 degrees inside the urgent care. So not only are there more people that need care, but the places that usually provide the care are suffering themselves because not all of them have air conditioning. In addition, in the last heat wave we had here, I believe in September, one of our nursing homes, the air conditioning uh, went out. So the whole building was 90 some uh, degrees Fahrenheit and of course the people in the nursing home is already a vulnerable population they're older they have comorbidities and other diseases um, so we had to scramble and plan on how to evacuate an entire nursing home and bring them to other places so that they could be safe uh, luckily they fixed the air conditioning in time and we didn't have to do that but having to imagine using all of these ambulance and EMS resources to evacuate people and take them to other facilities uh, that are already overwhelmed would have been a, a huge undertaking and a huge tax on the system. So it's important to consider not only the effect this has on people and ambulances and hospitals, but just general facilities where people uh, reside. It, it has a big effect. So I'm going to bring you to another patient that I saw. Um, this one was a 55-year-old male that arrived after overdosing on a psychiatric medication. Um, he was confused but uh, seemed stable and was able to talk. Um, his ID said that he was from Santa Rosa, which is uh, in Sonoma County, uh, which was reflective of the fact that we had some forest fires going on. So this was during the, the Kincaid fires. It displaced a lot of people and they needed somewhere to go where they could be supported. Uh, you know, their general support system and their their house, um, you know, there were mandatory evacuations. So many to came to San many came to San Francisco to stay with family, to stay with friends, or some of them were unsheltered and came because we have an infrastructure for helping people that are unsheltered. 
So this led to an increased need for, for shelters in San Francisco. So one of the places that stepped up to help was the St. Mary's Cathedral. It turned itself into a shelter, and it was uh, very impressive. I mean, there were... Um, there were nurses there to help with health care, there was pet care, there was food, there were televisions and toys for children, there were cots everywhere. It was, it's, it's, very imp- it's, it's sad when disasters happen, but I always think it's beautiful when you see people and, and how they respond to it and, and how much we can do in even a short period of time. You know, like I mentioned, to try and mitigate the stress on our healthcare system, the Red Cross offered some, some nursing staff that was in there um, to help with the bumps and bruises and, and coughs and things like that that helped... Um, to help the population there so they wouldn't have to depend on the EMS system and our hospital system to help with those things. Um, but even still, it poses a unique stress in our healthcare system because the patients that, that come to shelters are from out of town. They're away from their normal care, away from their pharmacy, their primary care doctor. Um, they don't have their normal medical equipment that they have at home, whether it's a CPAP machine or a walker or whatever. Um, they may not have been able to bring it with them. So if you don't have your normal transportation, your normal doctor, your normal medications that, you know, eventually leads to, to being dependent on our healthcare system. And if you don't have a way to get to the hospital and you don't have money, you don't have resources, um, you know, it, it increases the likelihood that people are going to call 911 for help, uh, which increases the, the stress on our EMS system and our hospital system. So this is an example of how heat can, can affect the environment and then affect populations in our system downstream. So as part of my uh, job working at San Francisco General, being um, you know, involved in, in EMS along with a lot of the other emergency physicians that are there, we're, we're trained to answer uh, calls that come from ambulance crews. So if they have any type of question or they want to use a specific medication or um, in this case, if they think uh, their resuscitation efforts for a patient are futile and the patient's not um, not able to survive whatever is going on, like a, a cardiac arrest, um, they'll call us for our approval to to pronounce the patient. Um, those are always difficult calls because you know we can't see the patient. It's kind of emotional. It's a it's a tough thing to say over the phone. But occasionally, um, it does seem like the the right thing to do if you feel like there's um, nothing that the hospital can do differently for the patient than what the crew's already doing. So in this case, uh, there's a ring overhead. So I, this is our communications room. That computer there in the middle is where we answer the phone, and then we can talk to the, the crew directly that's calling us on a phone. So they called me about a 65-year-old male that had a history of heart problems and emphysema, lung problems. He was staying in the shelter uh, and was displaced by the, the Kincaid fires. Um, they 911 was called because... He was found to be unresponsive. Uh, the paramedics couldn't find a detectable heart rhythm, and the entire time they had been in with him, he didn't respond to any medications or any interventions. So after 30, 40 minutes of resuscitation, uh, I agreed with them that unfortunately, uh, you know, medical efforts would be futile and the patient was was pronounced dead. Um, so this is, you know, unfortunately another example of, of someone who probably had exacerbated uh, health problems because because of the heat, because of being displaced, and you know this is something else that our healthcare system and our loved ones and our you know neighbors experience because of heat. So I thought this was interesting. This is a a study done on cardiac arrest in relation to California wildfires. So that the part I want you to pay attention to is just here in the conclusion about how cardiac arrest increase with wildfire smoke exposure and lower socioeconomic status appeared to increase the risk. So unfortunately, there's another example about how 
um, socioeconomic status can unfortunately put someone at a higher risk of getting disease and a higher risk of, of mortality. And in this case, um, it correlates with smoke exposure. And this is part of the paper. This is the, the pathway that they think um, may contribute to that. So, you know, I don't think it's worth going through it uh, detail by detail. But basically, you know, inflammation and body stress leads to increased blood pressure and uh, progression of, um, you know, plaques in the, in the blood vessels, which can lead to heart failure and strokes and heart attacks and even blood clots in the lungs. Uh, arrhythmias and all that can eventually lead to, to cardiac arrest. So in terms of what we can do to help, I mean, uh, the fact that you're watching this lecture uh, shows that you're invested in, in education, so education's a, a big portion of this, so uh, social media, posters, um, word of mouth, everything like that is, is all part of an important um, dissemination of, of information and education so people are aware and can be proactive about um, about their health. If they know heat is coming, going to a family member's house, uh, maybe a couple hours away even if they have to, that has air conditioning or resources or stocking up on, on some water, or um, if they're able to buy an air conditioner uh, before the stores run out and, and having it, um, or if they have, if a family has a loved one who's a little older, uh, being sure to check on them and or bring them over to their house where the air conditioning is better, things like that. Uh, so education being proactive is definitely a, a key point. Um, so something we do on our end in terms of um, the Department of Public Health and emergency management is, you know, send out these these tweets and you saw from the social media posts in the beginning of the presentation that, um, you know, people get notifications on their phones. So that's, that's a big part of... Um, kind of like a community-based effort to keep an eye on each other and be aware of what can happen. So something you as an individual can do to help uh, in these cases are to keep your windows open at night if it's safe and to close them during the day um, to help get the, the cooled air in at night. Um, something else you can do is to try and keep your house below 90 degrees. Like I mentioned before, 90 degrees is kind of the tipping point for uh, a lot of people in terms of when the heat really becomes dangerous and then below 75 degrees at night, um, especially for those over 60 years old and those who have infants and those with chronic health conditions. Something else you can do is to hang shades over your windows so the sunlight doesn't heat your, your house kind of like a greenhouse uh, throughout the day. You can hang wet towels. Um, electric fans can help, but once you get above 95 degrees, they're, they're not as helpful, but it can help... Um, circulate air in the house and help with uh, convection, like getting hot air off your body and blowing it off to, to cool yourself off. Um, if you can't avoid heat in your home, um, trying to spend two or three hours a day in a cool place can make a big difference. So in, in San Francisco and a lot of other cities, um, sometimes we have uh, city buses that are that have air conditioning. Interestingly, most of them don't have air conditioning here because it's not needed often, but some of them do have air conditioning. So you can put people on buses that cool them temporarily. Um, some, but not all of our libraries have air conditioning. So I believe our main public library does so people can go to the library uh, to get hydrated and cool off. Um, so, you know, public areas are, are a helpful place. I remember one of the hospitals I worked at in Chicago before coming here, um, people didn't necessarily have medical complaints, uh, but they were hot. So, you know, we let them sit in the in the lobby or the waiting room. Or on a normal day, we might be like, hey, if you don't have business at this hospital, 
you know, maybe you shouldn't sit here all day. But, you know, in cases like this, um, you know, we, we welcome people to sit in a cool area to prevent them from having health problems and making sure they were hydrated. And if you do any strenuous activity, try and do the coolest part of the day, 4 and 7 a.m. Um, so, you know, if, if you're someone who likes running first thing in the morning, being mindful that going running at 6 a.m. might be a little bit better than going at 7.30 when it'll be a little bit hotter. Uh, of course, don't leave your children and pets in the car because the car can get uh, much hotter in the inside uh, than, than it is outside. So other things you can do are try and keep your body cool. You can do that by taking cold showers, cold baths, hot packs, towels. I think foot baths are, are pretty easy. You can get a bucket, put some ice and water in it. And uh, especially for older people that may not be able to take a shower really, really easily, uh, you can put their feet in it and that can help cool them down. Um, drinking water regularly, especially uh you know, more than you think you might need, just having glasses of water next to you throughout the day to make sure you stay hydrated. Uh, you want to avoid alcohol. Um, it's something that uh, causes you to urinate a little bit more often, so that can contribute to dehydration. Um, same thing with uh, with caffeine, that can raise your body temperature a little bit since it's a stimulant. And sugar can cause, you're, you're, part of the way your body gets rid of sugar is by peeing it out in some cases, especially if you're diabetic, so uh, that can lead to dehydration. And it can also increase your metabolism, which can increase the, um, you know, your body temperature. So avoiding those things is good. Um, and similar to the, you know, metabolism with sugar, eating meals that um, are smaller and eating them less more often um, can help as well. If you eat like a big meal full of protein, then you know your body creates a lot of um, metabolism to break that food down, which can increase your body temperature. You, of course, want to be mindful of others. Check on family, friends, neighbors. You can check on them physically or call them often or whatever means that you normally communicate with your loved ones. Um, elderly and sick people living alone should be checked on every day and, if possible, having them in your house, um, assuming there isn't a pandemic, um, having them in your house to make sure that they're they're safe and staying hydrated is is always ideal. Um, being mindful of medications is important. Some people take medications that uh, may lower their blood pressure or may cause them, like a diuretic that may cause them to, to urinate a lot. So being mindful of how those medications may affect them and, and staying kind of ahead of the curve with, with keeping them um, healthy and hydrated is important. And then I think, uh, maybe I'm biased, but I think everyone should have a basic level of, of knowledge of first aid. Um, so especially you should know if you or other people feel unwell, I think the most important thing that anyone could know is what's normal and what's not normal. You don't have to know medicine. You don't have to know advanced physiology. You don't even have to know first aid. But if you know something is, is not normal, that's the most important thing because then from that point you can ask for help or call your primary doctor or, someone, or a loved one's primary doctor, you can go to the hospital, but knowing that something is not normal is the, is the first step, and then you know that you can uh, do research after that. Especially if, if you or someone else feels dizzy, weak, anxious, if you have a headache, if you feel thirsty, definitely move to a, a cool place first, and if you don't feel better uh, after drinking water in a, in a cool place, you know, after 10, 15 minutes, you should probably seek help. Um, you know, another important point, especially, uh, you know, people may have heard this when running marathons, water is a great way to rehydrate, but it doesn't have electrolytes in it. So when you, you sweat, you don't just sweat pure water, you sweat uh, salts along with, with water. So, um, you know, it's important to try and replace what you're losing. So drinking things with 
electrolytes is important. Um, so sports drinks is one example, although a lot of them have sugar in it, which, like I mentioned before, can lead to dehydration. But um, there's some drinks made for children that have less sugar in it or there's sports drinks that are diet or have less sugar. So those are, are great um, to have and, and drink, um, especially when people have kidney disease or are older and aren't able to um, – their kidneys aren't as healthy to, to manage their their hydration, their electrolytes as much. And again, if you start having cramps or feeling abnormal, especially if it lasts um, more than an hour and it's not getting better with, with rehydration, definitely a reason to, to seek medical care. In terms of first aid, um, as best you can, you want to move the person to a cool place, put them in a, in a flat position, elevate their legs. Um, the idea behind it is if they're uh, you know, dehydrated, this can help with their circulation. Some people say that doesn't actually help, but um, it's in the general recommendations from the, uh, you know, the WHO. Um, you remove the clothing, you put, you can put cold packs. Uh, this is something we do in the hospital. You put cold packs in their, in their groin, in their armpits, because that's right next to their arteries. So that can cool down the blood and cool down the body more quickly. Um, you can spray them with, with water and then fan them with an electric fan or anything else, uh, you know, a pillowcase or whatever you have, um, and that helps get the hot air away from the body and cool them down. Um, and then measure the body temperature if you have a thermometer, and uh, that can help give you an idea if, if they're overheated or not. Um, but again, I think first aid's important, but you don't want to do something like this and cool someone down for hours and then that's it. You know, this is something you would do until the ambulance arrives or until you get to the hospital. Or if it's a really young, healthy person, you know, I suppose you can try and rehydrate and take a cool shower before you, you seek help if, uh, if the person feels okay. But uh, really, I think the big take-home message is if, if something doesn't seem normal, you don't feel normal, try to rehydrate, try and be in a cool place. If you don't have a cool place, taking a, a cool shower um, with supervision because you don't want to pass out in the shower um, are going to be the, the key points. So at this point, I'd love to answer any questions any of all of you have. It's been a, a pleasure and an honor to be part of this lecture, and I appreciate you, you joining. Yeah, so someone uh, brought up attic fans, which is, I, I remember in the uh, the house I grew up in, there was a huge attic fan to take the, the hot air that's rising and blow it out of the house. So that's something, uh, if you have available, that you can use. Uh, so I'm looking at a question from Justin. How can we research hospital statistics on patient availability in California, specifically in LA, during different public health emergencies? Do you have any research on how air pollution is intensifying the harmful effects of COVID-19? Um, Hospital statistics are, uh, you may be able to find if they're published after the fact. I think once all this kind of uh, simmers down a little bit, people will be publishing a lot of studies and um, talking about how their local area responded to the pandemic. So I think that stuff will eventually be available in terms of like real-time information. Sometimes uh, counties publish public health data and they have like a dashboard available, kind of like what you see with how many cases of COVID there are and how many people are in the ICU and so forth. Um, but requesting real-time data is very difficult because, of course, everyone's kind of busy focusing on and responding to the pandemic. Um, so unless it's been publicized or it's on the county's like dashboard, um, it, it'd probably be pretty difficult to find until it's published later on. Uh, so a question about air quality. If you're in an area of poor air quality, is that the same as wildfire smoke on cardiovascular disease? Uh, I, I do believe so. I can't studies off the top of my head, but, you know, I, I do remember hearing throughout my education that being in a 
in an area with a lot of pollution can have similar effects to like cigarette smoking and uh, pollutants. I mean, the idea is that your your lung your lungs try and clean up um, your your lungs when you inhale dirt or smoke or things that aren't supposed to be in there. And the more that happens and the more damage happens, then your your lungs become become kind of fibrotic, like stiff, um, and then it um, can affect your your lung health. So um, I, I can't say exactly what what would make it a equivalent, um, but I, it probably has a, a similar physiologic effect. Um, yeah, and then putting someone who's unconscious on their side uh, is, is supposed to help so that in, in case they vomit, uh, they're less likely to, to aspirate or swallow, or rather inhale the, the vomit that, that just came out. Because if, if the vomit goes in the lungs, then um, that can cause a blockage of the air and eventually can lead to infections and aspiration pneumonia. So the idea is to keep them on the side so that if they, they vomit, it goes on the floor and not uh, into their lungs. Uh, and then there's a question from Bill um, saying that I use San Francisco as an example. What other areas are seeing more extreme heat waves due to climate change? So I think um, in, I don't know, 10, 15 slides in, I showed a map of the entire United States. I didn't do too much uh, research on the, the world as a whole. Um, but in the U.S., uh, if you remember, there it showed like the West Coast and the East Coast and parts of the South, interestingly, not Texas as much, that was seeing the, uh, the average number of days um, that had above average heat or experienced a heat wave was increasing in those areas. Um, so I would say those heat waves are more extreme. Uh, if, if an area experiences a heat wave that's... Um, you know, a, a hot day that's different than a heat wave where it's hot for multiple days in a row because then it heats um, people's houses and buildings more and then it takes longer for that temperature to normalize. So something I forgot to mention about uh, San Francisco is a lot of the houses are kind of older and made of stone, so they retain heat better uh, than other houses that are uh, constructed differently. So the, the temperature inside a lot of the buildings here is about 10 degrees hotter than outside. Uh, personally, my apartment has um, some big windows, so it's almost like a greenhouse in here. It could be 55 degrees outside, but we're hot inside and opening windows just because of that kind of greenhouse effect. So the, the type of building that um, someone is, is in can have a big effect as well. Uh, there's another question. Should we train ourselves for hot climate to acclimate better in the beginning of summer? Um, I suppose it, it, it depends on what you mean by train. I, I would... Uh, probably use the word prepare like uh, you I'm not sure you could train yourself physiologically in that in that short period of time but I would plan to make sure that you're paying attention to vulnerable populations and maybe if you have an elderly family member that lives by themselves maybe them bringing them over to your house you can keep an eye on them uh, making sure you have water making sure um, your appliances are in working order so your freezer doesn't stop working in the middle of a heat wave um, making sure that uh, you know, you get checkups and that your existing health conditions are are uh, well taken care of before the heat comes, making sure that you have, you know, the right clothes, things like that. I, I think preparing for any disaster, including heat waves, is, is the key. Uh, another question, do preventative emergency strategies and resources target zip codes at risk going to low-income communities with emergency interventions? Um, I... I I think a lot of our public education, uh, you know, we try and use this is definitely social media and using Twitter and things like that, but we also recognize that not all of the population is on Twitter. Um, 
and has access to internet. So we also try and post signs and use um, like the generic highway signs and billboards. Uh, so times when we have enough time to, to plan and put that stuff out, um, it's everywhere. And during this COVID pandemic, I mean, there's, there's signs posted everywhere. It's, it's all over the place. You, you can't escape from it. So I think, you know, ideally we have multiple methods of dispersing information um, so that it reaches as many populations as possible, including in different languages. Yeah, so in San Francisco, like many other cities and many other places, is, uh, there's a lot of different languages here, um, and a lot of different cultures, which is part of what makes the, the city great. Uh, so yeah, we, we try and post, I think most public announcements I see in at least three or four different languages to make sure that we, we get the most spoken languages. Uh, you know, sorry, you know, I think on the internet, we try and have even more languages, but the things that we physically post, I think there's usually three languages. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, that was an incredible whirlwind of, of um, understanding the heat impacts of your giving us a glimpse to um, your work and what it's like to be an emergency room um, physician, particularly dealing with this inevitable um, impact um, in of climate change that will be worldwide and also that we will be experiencing in our own locality. I am, um, I did get a window air conditioner anticipating the heat uh, extremes that we are likely to have this summer, but I do have to acknowledge that that is something that is not available for people who don't have economic resources. And um, so very important thing to think about and how to take care of people with um, who don't have resources. And I think a lot of the questions um, reflected a concern about that. I had a few um, other questions that I wanted to um, to ask you specifically about in regards to um, your work as an emergency physician. As we're experiencing the COVID crisis, we are more and more attuned and aware of the impact of um, the risks of first responders and, um, and medical people to um, work-related difficulties with, um, with now with COVID. But I wonder if you could address some of the issues of um, protecting the um, first responders for, and those who work in the emergency rooms um, during periods of extreme heat, both from a... Um, a physical risk and also uh, um, issues of morale during those uh, extreme heat periods. Yeah, I think there's a saying in healthcare that you can't take care of other people unless you take care of yourself. So we definitely, uh, you know, the hospital leadership and amongst uh, us as colleagues, we try and uh, encourage each other to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and making sure like, hey, did you make sure you, you had enough water today? How are you doing at home? Do you need anything? Um, I've been overwhelmed and flattered how many colleagues, um, uh, partly because we have a baby, but partly because of the pandemic, people ask, you know, can we give you anything? Do you have enough groceries? Do you have um, the resources you need? And so I think it's important to have that mentality among colleagues to make sure everyone's okay, everyone's uh, safe, and what we can do to support each other. I think, uh, you know, in the case of a heat wave, people might buy 
a lot of fans and air conditioners before the heat comes and there may not be many available. Uh, so, you know, offering a fan or offering blackout shades or things like that to make sure we all take care of each other. I think um, we're much stronger as a group when we take care of each other. So that's really important. Um, I think the same goes for first responders. I think they're amongst each other and their leadership and coming from us, I think education is a big, is a big key and reminding ourselves to take care of each other because it's easy to just keep going to work, keep going to work and say, I'll take care of myself later. I'll go to the gym later. I'll drink water later. I'll do that. I'll do that later. But it's important to encourage each other to pause and make sure that, that, um, you know, take care of yourself. Cause again, if you don't take care of yourself, then, uh, you know, you lose the ability to care for others if, if you become unwell. So. But when I see um, uh, EMS people out um, in the community or first responders, they've got all this gear on and jackets. Is that a particular risk for them during um, their work during extreme heat? I would say so. Kind of like I mentioned to manual workers being outside, that that gear can add extra heat. I mean, firefighters wearing turnout gear, all that extra stuff that's kind of designed to reflect heat and not contain too much heat. Um, but it still is a risk and it's something that they're, um, they're educated on and, uh, usually mindful of. They, they wear it when they're on the actual, uh, call that they're going on to respond, but they take it off when they go back to the, the fire stations, um, which is important. And then if there is an actual burning building or fire that they're working with, uh, you know, they make sure to rotate out all the firefighters so that they don't get too exhausted in the fire. And when they do come out, they generally, you know, take off the turnout gear and they're supposed to drink water. And often there's an ambulance on standby to uh, do rehab, we call it, where they uh, take their vital signs and check on them and make sure they can recuperate before they go back into the fire. So it's something that hopefully uh, every firefighter is well educated on because it's so important. In the work. Thank you very, very much for um, an excellent talk. Again, to the view of what your life is as an emergency room doctor and um, for providing such an incredible overview of the impacts of heat um, and also on all of the incredible suggestions for um, maintaining our own safety during extreme heats that we are sure to continue to face. Good night. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.